You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, midweek debrief number 111, and I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you, as always, for your time and attention today. I truly appreciate the support that you show me and the podcast. That being said, I have hoodies and stickers available for purchase. You can DM me or email me through Anchor FM. Otherwise, get a hold of me through Instagram, Warrior Priest Gym and Podcast, or Donovan Riley Warrior Priest. I'll send you information about sizing, and it's $50 for the hoodies. I cover all the extra cost of shipping and handling for you. Everything that you do to support the show, as far as buying the hoodies, going to Anchor FM, clicking that support button, buying me a cup of coffee, all that goes back into improving the show, getting resources for my content week to week and everything that goes with it. So if you want to do that, thank you. I truly appreciate it. And if you're just listening to the show, if you like it, consider sharing it on social media, recommending it to other people, telling other people to subscribe. That being said, then let's get into it. So this is the third episode that I'm going to do on the article by Ben Miller, The Best Defense is a Good Offense. Really? Today I want to focus on the question of training and the broader question of martial art versus martial game. Because this is something that you'll encounter in any martial art that you take up. And that's the question of what are we doing with our training? How are these techniques applied in real life scenarios? Are they applicable? Are they relevant? Or are they more art than martial? And this isn't just this generation's question. I was just talking with a friend the other night about jujitsu and whether or not jujitsu is becoming more and more watered down because it's becoming more and more sport oriented and less and less focused on self-defense. At least the gyms that I've trained at and, and been a part of either here in my area or when I travel it happens. It happens naturally. I imagine that if Muay Thai ever became like an Olympic sport or made it on NBC or ABC on Saturday or Sunday afternoons, you'd see Muay Thai become more and more watered down, even though it is watered down because originally Muay Thai was for self-defense. It was for war. And then once the betting came into it and it needed a rule set and it added rounds and points, these are all natural progressions that you add rule set, you add money to it, you add rules and regulations and weight classes and the ring and wraps and gloves and guards and headgear, all of these will naturally water down the original martial fighting side of the art. But is that a negative thing? Is it a positive thing? Is it one or the other? Is it both at the same time? So if you haven't listened to the previous two episodes, go back, check that out. It's episode 109, 110. Otherwise, this is the question that Ben Miller dives into, martial art or martial game. So to begin then, Captain John Godfrey in 1747 writes, The same awe ought to be paid to the foil as to the sword, whose representative it surely is. Nothing ought to be attempted with the one that would be feared with the other. So to return briefly to the Floquet-Boulanger duel, this particular combat raises another issue that is relevant to all martial arts, namely the disparity between the conditions of training and that of actual combat. As noted in the standards account, during his duel, Bullinger had resorted to the same aggressive tactics that had actually failed him during training. 
Bullinger, this is a quote now, Bullinger had previously run himself onto his fencing instructor's sword exactly as a few hours later he fared with Monsieur Floquet. Monsieur Floquet. So as recounted previously in the previous two episodes, Bullinger charged his fencing master, was promptly hit with a blunt training weapon, but ignoring the ramifications and the feedback received, decided that he would continue to use those same tactics in actual combat. Essentially, he neglected to treat his training weapons seriously, failing to envision what the same outcome would be with a sharp weapon, and then neglected to modify his tactics accordingly. The history of fencing is filled with similar accounts, wherein aspiring swordsmen resorted to strategies previously used with foils or blunted swords, which became fatal to themselves when used with sharp weapons. This is something that I find to be an organic process. When you train in a gym and you're on one and a half or two inch mats, when the walls are padded, when you're training with teammates, friends, people that you trust, that you respect, especially when you train regularly with these people. You don't want to hurt each other. No matter how hard you may go, no matter what you're preparing for, especially when you're preparing for a fight and the intensity of the training ramps up, the intensity of the sparring ramps up, in the back of your mind, these are still your friends. These are still your teammates. These are people that have jobs and families. You don't want to hurt them or injure them so that they can't work can't provide for their family, can't come back in the gym tomorrow night or the night after and train some more. You're watching out for each other. And those who don't behave in that way, those who don't reciprocate that sentiment, they're kind of pushed off to the side or they have a very limited amount of people that they can end up training with because people don't trust them. They recognize this person is here for selfish reasons only and therefore is detrimental and even harmful to their longevity and their overall health and well-being within the martial arts that they're training in. But that can also then be a pitfall because you need to train at a certain level of intensity. You need to simulate a fight to a certain degree so that when you're in that fight, there's not this big drop-off in intensity and aggression and attitude. I'm training up my first student for his first Muay Thai fight, first student that I've trained up from Muay Thai fight. So I consider that a great honor to be asked to do that. It's a privilege for me, but it's also very nerve-wracking for me because I need to do the best that I can, communicate as effectively as I can, drill down into the fundamentals as much as I can, and really instruct and emphasize for my student how important it is to develop and stick to the fundamentals. And what I mean by that is, this is his first fight. It's the six months and under class, which means that the people he'll be competing against will also be six months or less in their experience. One of the big hurdles for a lot of people when they first start Muay Thai is the, the anxiety and the stress getting punched and kicked causes, especially when you get punched and kicked in the head. Nobody's prepared for that when they start. And it, I shouldn't say nobody, but a majority of people, at least everyone that I've trained with, very few people that I've encountered came into the gym and was automatically from the get comfortable being punched and kicked. There's a learning curve there. There's an exposure therapy that takes place. You just have to get used to being kicked and punched and grabbed and elbowed and need. 
And there's no way to simulate that. My coach and I have thought about this for three years now of how to safely fight with knees and elbows in the clinch in sparring without the new people just teeing up on each other and hurting each other. So we're constantly in conversation. We're constantly watching videos and looking at seminars from Thailand and other professionals of how to do it safely. But with people that have been training for less than six months, that's difficult because they don't know what they don't know. And they compensate with aggression and speed and going as hard as they can. Same thing in jujitsu. But in Muay Thai, the consequences for having a lazy guard, for example, are catastrophic. The consequences for not having the fundamentals, not having a good strong jab to, to cover your, your footwork, not having a good lead teep to stop and manage distance, to control the distance between yourself and your opponent. Just, just basic footwork to me is so important for a fighter to learn, especially when they're brand new. And so teaching my, my student, preparing him for the fight, I can only tell him what it's like to be punched and kicked in the head at 80, 90, 100%. And just to assure him that I know you're afraid of the pain that comes with it, but trust me, the knockout, you never see that coming. Knockouts don't hurt <laughs> because you don't see it coming. I've been flashed at, knocked out three or four times in the gym in the last three years probably. All four were my fault. Lazy guard, you know, I gophered my head when I should have my chin tucked. I was in a bad position. The other person had a good angle, whatever it might be. You never see it coming, so it doesn't really hurt. It's just after the fact, when you get your bell rung that it, you know, you get the migraine uh, after you get home. But you can't train that. You can't philosophize about that. It's not something you can just grasp intellectually and prepare for. You just have to get smacked. You have to get kicked in the eyeball, as I have. You need to get dumped on your head, as I have. And you just learn through that exposure. It's just pain. And you can move through that pain. And you can use that pain as fuel to move forward in the fight. But if you can get into that first round, when you're both stressed, you're both anxious, you're both afraid, there's that adrenaline dump that comes. And if you can weather that initial barrage from your opponent who's going to unload on you and try and knock you out in the first round because they're afraid too and they're jumping adrenaline too. But if you can shell up, if you can control the distance, if you can hide behind your jab, if you can cover your movement behind your jabs and your teeps, you get through that first round. If the other person exhausts themselves, they've emptied the tank trying to knock you out. Now going into the second or even the third round, you have the advantage because you have more energy. You didn't dump as much adrenaline as they did. Your shoulders aren't heavy. Your gloves don't feel like you're carrying cinder blocks on the ends of your arms. You can stick with your game plan because you're well-grounded and well-trained in the fundamentals. But if you don't train that in the gym and you don't train them up to prepare for that fight, they're not going to be prepared, especially in those moments of stress when you're not able of thinking because you're up against the rope and the person's trying to tee off on you and take you out. If you don't have the fundamentals under your belt, you're going to panic. You might shut down and freeze or you might start swinging and, and throwing kicks wildly and end up getting tagged in the chin or take a liver shot or just a random punch finds its way past your guard. All of that being said, I can do all of that for him, but in the end, he's still got to take that first punch, that first kick, and that's when everything's going to sort itself out for him in the ring. So as a coach, I feel an enormous responsibility to train him up the best I can. Again, Empath, empath, empathize, emphasize the fundamentals. 
And as he grows and progresses, if he goes through this fight or two fights or three fights, and he comes out the other side, win, lose, or draw, and he wants to continue with Muay Thai, because I've seen that too. People think they're ready. They go into these fights, they lose, or they just get so beat up in their victory that they say to themselves, I don't want to do this anymore. This isn't for me, which I totally understand. A lot of people that fight for the first time, depending on the outcome, they don't come back in the gym. And that's why, for me, Muay Thai is this great revealer of the truth. The truth is revealed in jiu-jitsu for sure. But the worst that can happen in a competition is that you blow out your joint, you break an elbow, you separate your shoulder, you blow out your MCL, ACL. And I say all. I, these, are, these are terrible, horrible injuries. And I've seen them happen to people, and they're catastrophic, and they're painful. And I wouldn't wish these things on anybody. But with Muay Thai, at least for myself, it's a different kind of violence, a different degree of violence, a different level of violence that I don't experience when I compete in jiu-jitsu. And I actually take sparring in Muay Thai much more seriously than I take sparring in jiu-jitsu for that reason because there's so many things that can happen that can't happen in jiu-jitsu, at least for myself. And I try and make my students aware of that, that these are two different worlds, two different kinds of violence. But if you can learn how to survive within both of these martial arts. You can become a very well-rounded and effective mixed martial artist. Maybe not a fighter, but a very good mixed martial artist, which again goes to the question of motive. Why are you training the martial arts in the first place? Is it to learn self-defense, to get into shape, to develop your, your self-esteem and your, self and your confidence? Or do you want to be a fighter? Is that why you're here? You want to compete. You want to get in the cage or the ring. You want to walk on the mats. You want to test yourself against other people. These are the things that you, you come up against as you progress in your training. Am I going to be a mixed martial artist or just a martial artist in general? Or am I going to move more and more towards fighting and become a fighter? So like George St. Pierre, the famous middleweight UFC champion, uh, said, he never thought of himself as a fighter. He always considered himself a martial artist who fought. Whereas I know guys who are fighters who train in mixed martial arts. And it's just a different mindset. It's a different way of approaching what you're doing. But at root, you still have to ask yourself the question, why am I doing this and what am I doing this for? And then to what degree in sparring and in training do I need to find partners who can take me to the edge so that we're not in a full-blown fight with each other, but we're going at that level of intensity and that level of aggression for four, five, six rounds so that I can be cooked and roasted in that furnace and prepared and tempered to prepare for this fight so that the, the bridge between training and fighting isn't that long. It's not that far to cross. But I think we all have to ask ourselves that when we're training, how far am I willing to go with this? And because as far, as far as that goes, pardon the pun, you also have to be then prepared mentally to sacrifice and accept what happens. Because as the intensity and the aggression ramps up, as the degree increases to which you are applying yourself to this round, the consequences become more dire. They become more definite. Do you want to, do you accept separating your shoulder? Do you accept breaking your nose? Do you accept dislocating your toe? Do you accept the consequences for amping up your training? If not, don't do it, right? Or at least slow down and, and work your way toward it, you know, in a methodical and a more deliberate way more purposeful way so that you don't get caught by a surprise 
you don't end up, you know, hurting yourself catastrophically where you can't train anymore, have to drop out of your fight, whatever it may be. And surround yourself with people, especially coaches. In my opinion, now that I train and coach, to me, having good coaches around you is, is paramount to becoming successful as a mixed martial artist or a fighter. If you don't have the right coaches and coaches that work with your temperament, work with your personality, it can be very destructive for you. But on the other hand, with a good set of coaches around you and men and women that they get you, they understand your personality, they understand your mindset, they even understand your emotional um, attitude, your emotional mindset. They'll work with you and train you up and they'll recognize the things about you that are worth emphasizing and building upon, but also those weaknesses and vulnerabilities that you have that they can also address because they can see it. And when a lot of times you can't because you're in the moment, they can point those things out to you and then emphasize, let's train away this weakness. Let's get this vulnerability out of you. Let's focus on this. For the sake of getting in shape, building self-confidence and all that goes with it, still, I think having the right coaches and the right teammates around you are critical to your longevity as a martial artist. So then back to the article, as recounted previously, Bullinger charged his fencing master, was hit with the blunt training weapon, right? Because it was blunt and he knew that he couldn't be quote-unquote catastrophically injured as he was later in his duel with Floquet, he ignored the fact that if there were, this were a real fight, you would be dead or at least critically injured. And of course, then a few hours later, he commits the same error because his mind hasn't translated what happened earlier to what's happening now, and he was catastrophically injured. So I think it's not necessarily the swordmaster's fault for using a blunt instrument. What else was he supposed to do with a man who apparently, even though he styled himself as a duelist, as a fencer, he hadn't fenced since he was a cadet at the academy. And so whatever he had done, whatever he had done in matters of war, however he was tested on the battlefield or not, he thought more of himself as a fencer than was actually true. But also then, as we discussed in the previous episodes, his hubris disallowed him from learning from the swordmaster that if this were a real fight, you would be dead right now, or at least catastrophically injured. And therefore, he was a fool and ignored the instruction. And then in a real fight with real swords that were really sharp and pointy, he got injured. So during the 1870s, then, Colonel Monstery, himself a veteran of dozens of duels, observed such a trend in the American fencing world, in which contestants emphasized offense over defense in the attempt to, quote-unquote, score a hit. Monstery derisively referred to such contests as poker games. That is to say, quote, jabbing with the blade formed the chief method of attack while the defense was ignored. Such tactics often resulted in double or simultaneous hits to the two combatants. Monstery publicly warned that if such practices were to persist, quote unquote, it is only a matter of time for fencers to become proficient in this sort of cheating and to ruin the art of fencing in the United States forever. Well, there you go. Doesn't get more, much more definitive than that. He went on to explain, quote, there is only one safe practice to follow in foil fencing. This is to imitate as closely as possible the contest with the naked point. No one but a maniac 
would take thrust for thrust from an adversary with sharp points, unless, indeed, he was a very inferior swordsman, who wished to take some sort of revenge by piercing his enemy's shoulder at the price of a mortal wound through his own lungs. The consequences of simultaneous blows with sabers cannot fail to be disastrous to both parties. In an actual saber duel, their delivery would require two maniacs instead of one. <laughs> More than 300 years earlier, the German fencer Joachim Meyer had expressed exactly the same sentiment in his treatise on the longsword. Quote, it is no use to be overly aggressive with striking or to cut in at the same time against the adversary stroke recklessly as if with closed eyes, because this resembles not combat, but rather a mindless peasant's brawl. During the late medieval era then, around 1409, the fencing master Fiore de Liberi, who was born in 1340s somewhere and died somewhere in the 1420s, according to his bio, he noted the disparities between contesting with blunt weapons and engaging in actual combat with sharps and described how contestants modified their tactics accordingly. Quote, Also I, Fiore, told my students who had to fight in the barriers that fighting in the barriers is much and much less dangerous than fighting with cut and thrust swords in Zuparello d'Armer, that is, arming jacket, because to the one who plays with sharp swords, failing just one cover gives him death, while the one who fights in the barriers and is well armored can be given a lot of hits, but still he can win the battle. Also, there is another fact, that rarely someone dies because he gets hit. Thus, I can say that I would rather fight three times in the barriers than just once with sharp swords, as I said above. Fiore's comments certainly echo monsteries and prove that this issue is indeed an old one. Right, what do you do with that? What is the choice? We train with actual sharp swords that can actually cut, that can actually mortally wound if we make a mistake, or we can put on pads, we can put on armor, we can train with blunted weapons, we can train in the barriers, as he says. But what that does is it creates a false sense of security, a false sense that I can hit you three, four, seven, ten times in this fight, and I can still win on points. Is that then a martial art, or is it a martial game at that point? When I was little, these boppy bag things, they were blow-up um, boxing gloves, essentially, that you put on the ends of your hands. They look like little footstools, little like cylindrical footstools. You blew them up like a balloon and then you put them on the end of your hands. They're, you know, there was two sets in every box. So you got one set, they got the other set. And again, this is the 70s and 80s. Times were different where you could actually buy these things. And they were very popular. And of course, you learned very quickly. You got to really, you got to be really good at blowing them up and then getting that, that, that seal closed as quickly as possible. So no air escapes, because then that makes that really firm hard plastic uh, boppy at the end of your hand. You don't want a squishy boppy. You want a really hard one that just snaps their head back and leaves a big red welt on their forehead. And you just threw yourself at each other because you're eight, nine, 10 years old. You don't know how to fight. You just ape what you've seen on TV when you watch boxing and you just hit each other. And it looks terrible as you can imagine. But 
it's better than the alternative, which is punching each other with bare knuckles. At least you think that's true, but I'm not quite sure. Being a veteran of several boppy boxing matches, I'm not quite sure that getting punched with a bare fist wouldn't have been preferable to getting hit with a giant blown up pillow, plastic pillow. But you knew you were safe because you were wearing these giant inflated pillows at the end of your hands. And yet it hurt. It hurt a lot. And then when my dad bought me real boxing gloves when I was 11, probably, then that changed the game. Real boxing gloves. But it also hurt more. And you had to find other kids with boxing gloves, which at that time wasn't that prevalent. This is the 70s and 80s. I, was, I started kindergarten in 1976, to give you an idea, for reference. And so in the 80s, when I was in elementary and junior high, Nobody really knew anything about kickboxing. I mean, wrestling to a certain extent, if you came from a wrestling high school or a wrestling community. But as far as boxing, if you didn't live in a big city and there wasn't a Golden Gloves near you, it wasn't popular. People didn't own boxing gloves. Lots of people had heavy bags in their basements, but that was about the extent of it. There was usually free weights and a boxing bag, a heavy bag. And so if you knew somebody else who had boxing gloves, that was amazing that you could find somebody else to box. Or you would share your boxing glove. So each of you would wear one glove and you were only allowed to hit with one hand. And you would just stand in front of each other and just haymaker each other. But nobody ever got knocked out. You know, nobody ever got a black eye that I remember. And then as you got older and maybe you got in fights in junior high or high school, barefisted. In my high school, you didn't want to get in fights because there were hockey players who would pull your shirt over your head and just beat you on the ribs until you went down. And if you were lucky, they'd quit beating you up. You had the burnouts who, you know, leather jackets and brought their, their butterfly knife or their nunchucks to school. You don't want to fight with them. And so, yeah, it was a different, it was a different way of life in the 80s, yeah, especially in high school. And yet that cauldron of junior high and high school and that bubbling concoction, that chemical concoction of hormones and testosterone and aggression and insecurity and all the stuff that comes with being in junior high and high school or middle school for you, those of you who are younger, it's a heady atmosphere and it teaches you survival skills. It teaches you resilience. And you learn real quick whether you're a fighter or whether you're a talker or whether you're a runner. Are you going to get in fights? Are you going to talk your way out of situations or are you just going to run away from, from fights and conflicts? And then that's who you become. That's your reputation when you're in middle school and high school. But like he's talking about, when you train that way, does that train you for a real fight? And is it necessary to train with sharp swords? Is it necessary to train bare knuckle? Is it necessary to simulate a real life fight situation in order to prepare someone for the fight? Because I'm sure you know or you're familiar with these weekend seminars that start on Fridays and go through Sundays where... You wear pads and you put on headgear and you use rubber knives or rubber guns and you get in a cage or whatever it might be. And you simulate, quote unquote, simulate real life situations where you go 100% with one person, two people, three people in order to put yourself in, in that, that situation to simulate a real life fight. But if you don't do it all the time, is a weekend seminar really enough to prepare you for the stress and the anxiety that comes when that's happening to you in a convenience store or in a parking lot or at your home or in your apartment building? In my experience, the answer is no. You have to do it regularly. You have to do it all the time. 
I don't, as an example, I don't go to the gun range enough to consider myself a good marksman. Uh, what do you want to say? I'm not in any way, shape, or form, in my own mind, adept at handling a firearm because I just don't go to the range enough to feel secure about that. And training and teaching seven days a week in the martial arts, I recognize that learning how to be good with a firearm, how to handle your firearm, how to use it not only effectively but responsibly and be under control, it's a martial art, just like understanding the bow and learning how to shoot the bow and track and hunt out in the woods with a bow. It's a martial art. And if you don't train it regularly, if you don't put yourself in those situations to practice, to train yourself up, to acknowledge these are my weaknesses, these are the things that I need to work on, here's my strengths. If you don't put yourself in those situations, you're not going to get better. You'll know how to take out the gun. You know how to approach the target. You know how to load the gun. You know how to handle the gun. But you're at a range and the target isn't charging at you. It's not shooting back at you. It's not yelling threats at you. It's not a person. Likewise, you can fire an arrow at a target, but it's not a deer. It's not an elk. It's not a moving target. It's not something you can just creep up on. You have to practice. You have to train. And there's just, like I said, certain things about training that you just can't simulate a real-life situation. You have to just go hunting. You have to go out in the woods and learn from your mistakes. You have to fail upwards, in my opinion. Likewise, at a certain point, you just have to accept that you're either adept with your firearm or you're not. But you just have, I think anyways, you just have to have the proper mindset and recognize, am I a hobbyist at this? Am I dedicated to this? Am I a student who is striving to master this martial art? Do I recognize this as a martial art? Because again, as I've talked about in the previous two episodes, I think this applies to every aspect of your life then. I'll use relationships again as an example. As a pastor, people come to me when their marriage or their relationship is in a critical stage, when it's in breach. And they come and they confess what they believe is the problem in the relationship or what's made it toxic and why they're at their wit's end about what to do. One of the things that people don't think about usually when they're in a relationship, especially if they're going to get married, is this is hard work. Being in a relationship is work. You actually have to work in order to be the person that you need to be in the relationship, whatever that means. You have to take into consideration your partner's thoughts, feelings, behaviors, how they talk, their quirks and idiosyncrasies, as they do for you. Otherwise, if you can't recognize each other's strengths, you can't nurture those, encourage those, be there to walk with them as they develop those strengths. But likewise, you also need to be there to be the critic, to say, I think that's a weakness. I think that's a vulnerability. I don't think that's a healthy attitude. I don't think that behavior is useful. I don't think that that way of thinking and speaking is all that productive for this relationship. Every day in a relationship, you have to rededicate yourself to being in that relationship 100%. You can't just read books and watch videos and talk to other people about how to be in a relationship. That only goes so far. It's like watching jujitsu videos. It only goes so far before you have to go on the mat and actually try and apply what you see 
and what you believe works intellectually to an actual kinetic situation where there's another person who gets a vote, who gets to also counter your moves. A relationship is as much a martial art as Muay Thai, Jiu-Jitsu, fencing, whatever it might be. Because martial, the art of war, any relationship is going to be based in conflict because we're all selfish people. We're all self-centered people. And a relationship is each person in the relationship seeking to overcome their own egoism, their own selfishness, in order to live selflessly for their partner whom they hopefully love and respect and want the best for. That requires sacrifice. It requires humility. It requires you to communicate and to ask questions and to say, what did you think about that when I said that? Or what did you think about that when I did that for you? Or when you asked me to do that and I didn't? You have to be open and honest and sober about who you are as a person in that relationship. But likewise, you need to know the other person to understand and sympathize with the other person so that you know who they are as well. Because what good does it do if you know yourself, but you don't know the other person you're in a relationship with? And the opposite side of the house, what good does it do to know everything about the person you're with when you don't know who you are as a person yet? And so I was just talking with someone the other day and I was explaining, if you can't be comfortable being alone with yourself, if you don't like who you are, then you're never going to be satisfied in a relationship with someone else. Because that dissatisfaction with yourself, that sense of unfulfillment or incompleteness, whatever it is that lends to that, it's going to come out. It's going to pour out into the relationship and it's going to affect your interaction with your partner. So if you don't want to deal with that, it's going to find its way out in your relationships, at work, at school, in the gym, with your partner. So if you don't address it now, you're going to address it down the road and it may not be for the benefit of anybody in the relationship. You've got to put yourself in those real life situations in the relationship because that's a real life scenario. And if you want the relationship to quote unquote work, if you want what's good, if you want it to succeed, in my opinion anyways, you have to treat it like a martial art. You have to get up and whether you want to train every day, you got to train every day because there's going to be days when you're sick, you're injured, you just can't get to the gym. Likewise, in a relationship, you're not going to be there 100% every day. You're going to be sick. You're going to be tired. You're going to feel lazy. You're going to get complacent. You've got to work through those things. You've got to be disciplined about it because relationships that work are hard work. And I think that's why so many relationships end in breakups and divorce. Excuse me. Everything's pollinating now, so my allergies are flared up. So I apologize for sniffling. Whatever you apply yourself to, you, if you treat it like a game, like he says, what's going to end up happening is once you treat it like a game, you always think, well, I can win on points or I don't have to give it my all because I'm safe. And I think that breeds complacency. It's like we say in the gym, comfort equals death. Comfort is slow death. Now, even when you're comfortable being uncomfortable, as we say in jujitsu, even that then can become a slow death because you fall into patterns. You do the same guard pass. You do the same submission attempts. You go in the same pathways toward those submissions. Every time you become predictable. And 
other people that you roll with all the time, other people you train with all the time, they become predictable because you learn what they like to do and you learn what their weaknesses are and you're constantly attacking those things. So if you don't have any training partners, if you don't have a partner that challenges you, that pushes you to be better, do you then just kind of organically stagnate because you become comfortable, you become complacent? And then the relationship starts to develop a rotten foundation. The foundation starts to rot. Likewise, as a martial artist, then, do you stop growing? Do you stop advancing and learning and becoming better as a martial artist because you treat it solely as a game and you forget the martial side of the art? So if you play with sharp swords, as an example, to Minstry's point, you got to be on your game because one wrong move, that's it. And if you train with real swords in the gym and you make a wrong move, you'll end up with a nice scar on your cheek. At one time in certain places, those scars were considered marks of honor. It was to show to the world when you were out in the street, this guy's a fencer and he's serious about it. Versus the days when they used blunted weapons and they wore jackets that were armored up and they wore headgear and it was more points focused rather than worrying about the tip of the blade cutting you. What does that do to the mindset? What does that do to the art? So to continue then, in 1691, excuse me, fencing master William Hope, who was born in 1660 and died in 1724, he observed similar mistakes among swordsmen training with blunted weapons. Although Hope was somewhat coy about his own combat experience with sharps, his books on the art of fencing give great insight into the techniques and approaches of his era and echo many of the martial points of other masters, which we will examine. In his writings, Hope speaks of the quote-unquote assault, later defined as, quote, the exercise with blunt weapons, representing in every respect a combat with sharps, in which we execute at will all the maneuvers of the fencing lessons, unquote. However, in his observations, Hope makes it clear that not all participants were wont to treat the assault as a quote-unquote combat with sharps. So he writes, <clears throat> excuse me, when people assault, it is commonly with blunts, and when an ignorant who undervalueth the art of the sword and trusteth all to his own forwardness is desired by an artist to show his natural play, he very well considering that he can receive no prejudice by his being hit with a blunt fleurette, that is a foil, rusheth and rambleth still forwards. Let him receive never so many thrusts until he either hitteth the artist with one of his rambling thrusts, or otherwise cometh so close that the artist must enclose with him. And he thinketh, if he hath given the artist but one thrust, although he himself should receive three or four in the time they are playing, that he hath carried the day, and quite run down with the art of fencing. Whereas if they were either to play with real sharps or with florets, having a quarter of an inch of a point beyond the button, I make not the least doubt, but their rambling would be a little slower. Why do you charge forward? Because I know the consequences aren't that dire. Why do you throw yourself at the problem? What's, what's the worst that can happen? I get knocked out. I get choked unconscious. Okay, get back up, do it again right? And I don't have an opinion, by the way, on whether or not 
one should simulate in sparring a as close to fight level intensity as possible. I've done both. And depending on the teammate and what they're preparing for, the, like I've said before in the past, there's some days I just roll with the blue and the white belts. I roll with the teens just to have fun, just to play and experiment and be creative and help other people kind of develop and, and work. Then there's other times when I'm working with the brown belts and the black belts and we're going at 80%, even 90%. Like I said last week, going with my coach because he was getting ready for his competition. It's a little bit more intense. You ramp it up. But I do that with people I trust because I know it's going to make me better. It's going to push me mentally, especially. So that when I get in a real fight, it's really for me, not really much harder than sparring. But I think you have to control, again, the amplitude of your sparring sessions so that when you're not preparing for a fight, you're not always in fight mode because in my experience, that's when injuries happen or you hurt somebody else versus when it is time to get ready for that fight, when you're in your camp and you're ramping up, yeah, each person, each camp, each coach is going to have a different approach to sparring leading up to the fight. Some want to get as close to fight conditions as possible. Otherwise, want to keep it as relaxed as possible. It has a lot to do with the experience of the fighter. There's a lot of variables there. And so I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all. It's just a matter of, like I said, the coaches and the team working with the fighter and recognizing these are things we need to emphasize in our training camp. These are things we really have to drill down into. And these other things, let's not worry about them so much right now. These are your strengths. These are right there for you whenever you need them. We don't have to really devote too much time to these areas. But when it becomes a game, I think, again, if that's the way you approach it, that's fine. Like I said, I do that too. But you also have to be realistic then that in those moments, you're not simulating a fight. You're not preparing for a fight. You're not in fight mode mentally. You're having fun. You're playing a game and that's what it is. It's just playing. And that's okay too, as long as you don't get it twisted up and start thinking that you're a world killer because you're a brown or a purple belt and you're folding up blue and white belts. I mean, it's, it's close to realistic in the sense that when you get in a, a conflict with somebody who doesn't know how to grapple or strike, it's going to be like basically controlling a, a giant action figure or rolling with a child who doesn't know what they're doing, an oversized child who's trying to rip your head off. But nothing in my experience can prepare you for getting punched in the mouth other than getting punched in the mouth. You just can't simulate that. You just got to get exposed to it, get comfortable with it. As I said to my student yesterday, you know that feeling you get when you're with that girl, that boy, and they touch you for the first time and you get those butterflies in your stomach and oh, you can just feel the endorphins kicking? Yeah, that's where I'm at when it comes to getting punched and kicked now. If you punch me or kick me, I get that feeling in the pit of my stomach. I get butterflies. I start getting excited. And I'm like, ooh, we're going to fight. But it took me three and a half to four years to get there. It's really only been two and a half or three years that I've been really comfortable getting punched and kicked. And by saying really comfortable, I don't like getting punched and kicked. It's not my favorite thing to do, which is why I work really, really hard on defense. Using my length, using my teeps, using my jab to control distance, developing my clinch game so that if you are aggressive or I feel like getting aggressive, I can close the distance, get inside your elbows and knees, control you, put you on the ground, dominate you. But in my opinion, and the way that I function, the best offense is coming out of a really, really strong, well-developed defense. 
And so I'm not always a counterpuncher, not always working out of my defense, but against aggressive people, I let them punch themselves out. I let them exhaust themselves. And then I flip it and I drown them. I just put it on them, just seven or eight jabs in a row. Kick, jab, kick, jab, kick, jab, just constant teeps and jabs, throwing the hook, throwing the upper, switching levels, hitting them in the gut, hitting them in the head, kicking them in the leg, kicking them in the arms, and just constantly keeping them on their heels. But that's my game. And everybody is different. Everybody expresses the art side of the martial art differently. And that's what's exciting to me about training and learning from different people is they can show me things. My coach is 90 pounds heavier than I am. He's a beast. So his fighting style is he just marches forward. And he loves uppercuts and overhands. And so even though I'm 6'2", 180, and he's 6 foot, 6'1", 260, 270, I've then learned from him how to be a forward-moving fighter. So even though I'm tall and lanky, I fight like a bigger man because that's kind of what my coach instilled in me. So I stay on the outside and use my length to my advantage, but also I learned from my coach how to fight inside and fight big. And that throws people off then because they see me as a tall, lanky guy and they think they can throw me around. Well, because I've developed footwork from training with bigger people, because I've learned how to fight inside and outside and control the distance and control the angles and make sure my head isn't on that center line when those punches and kicks start coming, it makes me very difficult to get to the ground. Not that I'm impossible. I had a black belt take me down in my last competition rather quickly. There's levels to this game, son, right? But it's just to say that I try and train in such a way that I train safe and I train responsibly and that I train so that my partners also benefit from their time with me. On the other hand, when it's time to fight, then I'm ready to fight and I'm ready to amp up the intensity of the workout. But in no way do I confuse that with being in a real fight. So even back in 2020, when I was training in my coach's garage and we were just going bare knuckle with each other, we're still only going at like 20%. We're trying not to break our hands. We're not trying to hurt each other. We did, of course, naturally, your bare shins, bare feet, bare knuckles. Injuries are going to happen. But none of them kept us from being able to work. None of them put us in the hospital. And so at the very least, I know what it's like to get punched repeatedly with bare knuckles and elbows and knees and get kicked with, with the shin without the shin guards on. So I have that advantage. But I also then know when I do pad work, and I'm going at 100%, I explain to my students, when we do pad work, this is how hard I'm going to kick and punch when we fight, for real. When we spar, I'm just playing, I'm just being creative, I'm just, you know, honing my craft and letting you work too. So don't get it confused. If I seem playful and relaxed, if I seem like I'm smiling and talking while we're sparring, it's because I'm keeping it at around 40 to 50% intensity. I'm trying to keep things on the down low, keep things stable and relaxed and enjoyable. But if you want to go to 70 or 80%, we can go there. It's just what benefit is it to you or to myself if we go to that place? Maybe there is a benefit, but let's make sure that we understand each other first, that we trust each other to go there. And that's one of the privileges that I have, I think, is that I trust both of my coaches in Jiu-Jitsu and Muay Thai explicitly. And I know they're going to take care of me when we train. And I know they're going to bring the best out in me which means sometimes they're going to put it on me and we're going to go to 90% intensity, 90% aggression. And in those moments, I just laugh because I know 
this is this is the cauldron. I'm getting cooked. I'm getting roasted. And coming out the other side of this, I'm going to be a different person. I'm going to be better for it. So figure it out, right? And then there's other times we just play. I think there's a time for both. But when it comes to swords and getting the wrong idea about going out in the pasture at 7 o'clock in the morning and dueling your opponent, I think that's a little bit more dire than getting punched or kicked or getting strangled. And if you're not prepared to get stabbed, what are you doing, man? Like, this is a very real, (laughs) dire, mortal set of consequences if you don't take this seriously. But what happens when you use blunted weapons? What happens when you start wearing the armor and you start going for points? I think you get a distorted view of reality. And that's why you end up getting stabbed in the jugular in a duel. So Joseph Rowland, for example, referred to gamesters, as they called them, as blunderers, ignorance, irregulars, and ferrolures, ferai, ferrolures. My French is terrible, so I apologize. If you didn't know that already. (laughs) I had over a decade of German. I speak Spanish. I read Hebrew and Greek and Latin. But yeah, my Italian and my, my French is terrible. So I apologize to all the French speakers that I mutilate your language. Again, I'm an American. It's what we do. But I apologize. Ignorance, blunderers, irregulars. And so Roland was unsparing in his criticism. He writes, Indeed, a man must be an idiot to call this fencing, since in a serious affair he would, by such conduct, rush headlong on his own destruction. Going back to hope, he wastes no time in prescribing a solution for how to deal with such quote-unquote ignorant fencers. He writes, To prevent this inconveniency, if I were to play with an ignorant for a wager, I would play always with pointed sharp florets, and then, in God's name, let him ramble his belly full. For in that case, I would know a way to come at him, which might perhaps cause him repent of his forwardness. This is an inconvenience. And so if an ignorant challenges me to a duel and wants to put a wager on it, let's bet money on this. I would always want to do it with sharps, with pointed swords. So then in God's name, I could just let him run his way onto my sword, run himself through on my sword. And maybe in this way, he would repent of his forwardness, meaning literally, the only way this guy's going to learn his lessons is if he's going to impale himself on my sword. Then maybe he could repent of his aggressiveness. Because anybody who would challenge me to a duel and challenge me to a duel for money assumes he's going to survive this. So let's do it with real swords. Do you still want to raise your money on this? Do you still want to go through with this? Okay, what comes next? I'm going to play defense and I'm going to let you impale yourself I'm going to let you give me the submission. I'm going to offer you something. And then I'm going to allow your aggression and I'm going to allow your hubris to ruin you, to literally impale yourself on my sword. So this sentiment of hopes would find further realization during the 19th century when fencers practicing with the api or ape, the dueling sword, adopted the point d'arrête, the stopping point, a one to three pronged point with small protruding spikes, which would typically cause pain to the fencer being hit, thus encouraging a more defensive mindset. 
and better preparing the fencer for actual combat. Although during the 20th century, the point de arete was discarded by modern Olympic sport fencers along with the advent of electronic scoring apparatus. The point de arete remains in use today among certain circles of classical fencing traditionalists. So even the three branch or the kind of thumbtack looking point that they would put on the end of the, of the epee, they took that away and just replaced it with a rubber knob so that there's literally no danger whatsoever of being hurt. And then you wear the jacket, the padded jacket, and you wear the fencing mask, you wear gloves, everything's electronic now, so it's all points-based. Does that mean that an Olympic fencer could not mess you up in a real fight with real swords? 100% they would mess you up, especially if you've never even picked up a sword before. Or you think, well, I've watched sword fights on TV, I've seen movies with sword fights. I used to get in sword fights in the woods with my friends when we were little with sticks. I've got a basic grasp of fencing. No, you don't. No, you don't. <laughs> no, that's not how this works. And yet, even within the quote-unquote sport of fencing, they made it even more nerfed by taking away the little point that goes on the end of the um, rapier, the epi. So what does that do for the the martial side of the art. Well, it renders it almost benign at a certain point because the chances of you being hurt of being stabbed are literally, you know, astronomical that you're going to get hit in such a way with the point that it actually injures you. Maybe it finds its way between the mask and the vest and hits you in the Adam's apple or something. I don't know. I'm not that familiar with Olympic fencing. But once you take away the risk of injury, the danger is removed. What motive does the person have then to take serious that charging forward may not be the best offensive tactic? Because I've watched enough Olympic fencing and enough fencing in general to know that it's very quick. It's like sumo wrestling in a certain sense. It's very fast. And it's very easy to understand. I touch you before you touch me. And depending on where I touch you, I get more or less points. But it's very quick. And it's very aggressive, moving forward, slicing through the opponent's defense, getting the point. Okay, all well and good. And in a real fight against an untrained opponent, if you just happen to have a sword with you, of course, you're going to dominate the other person. But we also live in a world where sword fights don't happen regularly, and we don't challenge each other to duels anymore. And so for the regular fencer, do you really know how to train with a bladed weapon with a long sword? Do you need to, need to know how to fight with a claymore or even a katana or a wakazashi? No, not really. It doesn't, there, where is that called for? It's like learning how to shoot a bow and arrow from horseback. When is that necessary anymore? It's a very small group of people who train that way and they just do it out of love for the tradition. But last time I, I was on my back deck having coffee in the morning, I didn't see, you know, herdsmen wandering by. I didn't see any of uh, the Mongols riding on by hunting. It just doesn't happen anymore. So I get it. But also I wonder if that isn't what kills the fighting side of the martial art. It is the more sportified it becomes, the less relevant it becomes, the less interest people will have in that martial art. 
I've talked with friends who've done Kyokushin karate. I've talked with friends who do Taekwondo and are familiar with the history of their martial arts. And they tell me the same thing, that it wasn't always like this. And that it wasn't always so sport-oriented, point-oriented. It wasn't always about form or kata. That it was for self-defense. It was for fighting when you were disarmed and lost your shield. But then in the 20th century, it got sportified more and more. And now it is what it is. And the Taekwondo gyms around me, I get it. I'm familiar with it. All my kids started Taekwondo when they were four, dropped out at some point around 8, 10, 12 years old to start Jiu-Jitsu Muay Thai. They just didn't find Taekwondo realistic or useful for, you know, self-defense situations. Is that the fault of the gym, of the instructors? Is it the fault of the tradition that became more and more sportified and less and less relevant than in, in matters of actual self-defense, at least at lower levels? And is that where jiu-jitsu is headed? Is that where Muay Thai is headed? I don't know. I have a feeling that is where it's headed because, like I said, jiu-jitsu has become so sport-oriented and I worry that Muay Thai is becoming even more and more sport-oriented as those who teach it and sell it try to make it more appealing to a larger crowd of people, which I get. It's a financial decision. It's a business problem to solve. But Muay Thai is known as the most violent striking martial art in the world. What is it if you take that away from it? I don't know. I've been to gyms where I wasn't allowed to spar where they only do heavy bag work. And so it's not really Muay Thai, it's more like Taibo. But people like that because there's no threat. You don't have to worry about getting injured. You don't have to overcome your fear of getting punched in the mouth or kicked in the leg. But again, doesn't that create a false sense of confidence when you go back out in the world thinking to yourself, I just beat the crap out of that heavy bag for an hour and I've been doing this for a year now and I really feel like I'm, I'm competent as a striker. Yeah, but you've never been punched in the mouth. You've never even been stress tested. You've just been told by your instructor, okay, we're going to do 10 left hooks and 10 right hooks. Then we're going to do 10 lead kicks and then 10 rear kicks. Now we're going to do teeps. Now we're going to do push-ups and sit-ups. Now we're going to work with the medicine ball. Now we're going to go back to the heavy bag. Heavy bags don't fight back. As the man said, brick don't hit back. And I think it creates a false sense of confidence for people. And as someone who is an instructor now and teaches and coaches, that's one of my greatest fears is that I don't train up my students so that when they're put in a stressful situation, even if it's not a fight, even if it's a mental fight or an emotional fight, they're not prepared. And if they're not prepared, I feel like I didn't prepare them adequately. And I feel like that's to my shame. And so I always want to get better as a coach and I always want to be a better communicator and more effective as a teacher and take into consideration, these are scenarios that could happen in the ring, in the cage, on the street. So how am I mentally and physically preparing my students, emotionally preparing my students to handle that stress when it comes? And if I'm not, where am I lacking? Where am I deficient? And how do I fix that so that my students don't suffer from my inadequacies or incompetence? So despite such training methodologies and hopes and others' critiques of those, as well as numerous warnings, it is clear that many combatants, Bullinger being an obvious example, they went on to use suicidal tactics in actual combat, either out of ignorance, lack of control, so-called nerves, 
or the fact that they had become used to pursuing such tactics while engaging safely with blunts. Thus, some authors and fencing masters wrote of the need to be prepared for such tactics applied to actual sharps, and to know how to fence accordingly. Fels Yori, in his Safe Outcome of the Saber Duel, includes a section entitled Advice for Utilizing Mental and Physical Powers. Advice for Utilizing Mental and Physical Powers. He explains, Every good and capable fencer should watch out for simultaneous cuts, doubles as he calls them, which consistently result in the ugliest of cuts. While fencing in assaults, we experience a lot of double touches. These result either from real attacks occurring simultaneously or from poorly utilized reposts while defending. But these double touches occur even more frequently in dueling, not overcoming obsession, anger, and hatred. These manifest in forsaking all defense and attacking one's opponent wildly. How easy it is, with calm parries and mindful demeanor, to disarm such opponents. These same issues can be observed in the historical development and subsequent devolution of Western boxing. Originally in previous centuries, boxing had been practiced in Europe and America as a bare-knuckle martial art intended both for self-defense and the settling of disputes. It included a variety of techniques, such as striking, grappling, and tripping, as well as defenses against headbutting and eye-gouging. The following passage from Thomas Futrell's Science of Manual Defense, written in 1790, explicates the 18th century martial art approach to boxing. Quote, I wish it to be universally understood that I recommend the practice of sparring as if in real action. No maneuvers, no attitudes ought to be adopted unless experimentally, but what would be introduced in an actual fight. The following technique attributed to the celebrated fighter Daniel Mendoza gives an idea of how 18th century bare-knuckle techniques differed from those that would later be used in modern boxing. Quote, a blow on the bridge of the nose with one of the large knuckles, if given either by striking straight or striking the chopper, slits the nose from top to bottom. Now, such techniques were not to last. By the late 19th century, the focus and objective of boxing had largely shifted to winning at gloved competition, even though the art was still often taught under the pretext of self-defense. The new sport of boxing gave rise to many changes, including a less conservative guard position, which relied on the use of large padded gloves to shield the body and the head. The use of horizontal rather than vertical fist when striking, and a whole new host of techniques that were only effective when executed while wearing gloves. Colonel Monstery, in one of the last American treatises devoted to pure bare-knuckle boxing, describes, with derision, many such techniques, which he forbade at his academy due to the fact that they would be useless or ineffective in an actual self-defense situation. Monstery cataloged these techniques as, quote, one, whipping, two, cutting, three, palming, and four, random blows. Monstry elaborates on the technique of cutting. He writes, Cutting is the common way of striking used by natural and unscientific boxers. If tried in a fight with the bare hands, it does not hurt like a true blow in the line of power, and it exposes the knuckles to injury in giving it. In glove sparring, it is a malicious way of striking, as it forces aside the padding of the glove, and the blow comes with the edge of the hand, made harder by one fold of leather. Nevertheless, cutting 
is the most popular of all sorts of hitting in public sparring matches. A cut is a smart slap and makes a loud noise. Wherefore, uninstructed audiences generally applaud a loud cut. A true blow, however heavy, makes no noise with the glove and is only noticed by its effects. Well, there you go. Such techniques would go on to dominate the ever-evolving sport of modern boxing. Derisively referred to as sandbagging by one aging veteran named William Madden. In 1885, another author explained that modern boxing had become, quote, the mere shadow and semblance of what it was formerly. Fifty years ago, sparring with the gloves was regarded chiefly as a means to an end. The teacher of it instructed his pupil, not with a view of enabling him to use the glove prettily, but how to use his fist with most effect. The far greater part of those who now take lessons do so purely with the desire of excelling in competitions with the gloves. Half the men who win the most honors and prizes in these competitions have never struck a blow with the bare fist since they were at school and are little likely to do so till the day of their death. Accordingly, the spectators at an assault of arms, which is now the favorite occasion for a display of pugilistic science, no longer try to imagine what each blow would be like if the glove was off when it was delivered. Instead, they count the hits, not for what they represent, but for what they are. And thus, often a loud-sounding slap with the half-open glove is applauded as a most telling stroke, while the neat uppercut, which would tell ten times more heavily in a real battle, passes comparatively unnoticed and possibly unseen except by a few. There you go. So that's the difference then for them, for a guy like Minstry or Hope or the others. William Madden, in the previous quote that I just read, there's the reality of combat, and then there's the requirements of the success in gamesmanship. And for them, success in the game is a watered-down version, a shadowy form of self-defense of the original intent of boxing, of fencing, of striking or grappling. And once it becomes watered down in a shell of itself, a a shadow of its former self, then the competition and succeeding in the game side of the competition gets equated with actual armed encounters. And as Minstry said, this is delusional thinking. That's all it is. We all suffer from it. I think anyways, if you're engaged in the martial arts at any level, you either delude yourself into believing that you're not very good at it because you train with other people who are great at the martial art, or you get this false sense of, yeah, I'm really good at this, and I tap a lot of people at the gym, or I'm always dominating people in Muay Thai sparring, and so if I got in a real fight, that would be it, man. i just drop them, or I'd take them down and get on top. Maybe. Maybe not. But to think that you would dominate in a real fight when you've never been in a real fight. It doesn't matter how competent you are. You have a false sense of your own adequacy, your own aptitude. Like I said, with the analogy of of training with a gun, I don't go to a gun range enough and I don't put myself in classes with expert marksmen, people who are experts at handling pistols, who can train me up and teach me not only how to fire at a target effectively, 
how to exercise proper technique in target shooting, but how to maintain the proper mentality, keep my heart rate down, stay relaxed and breathe in a stressful situation where I'm pointing my pistol at a human being, whether in my yard, coming through my, my home, attacking another person, whatever it might be. So I do not have this egoism when it comes to my firearms that I'm somehow a master or even just good at handling firearms. I am not. And therefore, I have a very healthy fear of firearms. And I mean fear in the sense of respect that this has one purpose and it's not a paperweight. And so I'm not going to just pull my pistol out and wave it in the air to try and intimidate people. Because you see people do this when they have no respect for the firearm and what it can do. And if you have children in particular, you train them up. You never point a weapon at a person. You always assume the weapon is loaded. You never point at anything that you don't intend to shoot. The basics of firearm safety. Never put your finger on the trigger unless you're going to shoot. Always take the clip out, check the chamber twice. There are all these things, right? These fundamentals that you're taught when you first pick up a firearm if you're around someone who is trained up and can train you. If I punch you and you don't have a strong guard, I snap your head back. Maybe you get a concussion. Maybe you just get your bell rung. But if I discharge my firearm irresponsibly, that could be it for you. That could be it for me. That's my life right there. I'm going to jail. Or at the very least, I've ruined my life because I've ruined your life. These are dire consequences, whether you're, it's a knife, bow and arrow, crossbow, swords, guns, whatever it might be. But I think we get this false sense of reality and a false sense of ourselves, one, because of Hollywood and the Hollywoodification of gunplay, swordplay, the John Wick kind of approach to martial arts that that's what it's going to be like. No, those are actors and those stuntmen are willing participants being thrown around. And Keanu Reeves may have a blue or a purple belt in jiu-jitsu and he may know how to handle a gun because he's trained in it. But has he ever had to do that in real life? Has he ever been punched in the mouth in real life and had to use martial arts in the subway, on the street, in a life or death situation where he's defending his life or the life of somebody else? Or is it martial arts and he's a Hollywood actor who knows martial arts? Again, no disrespect. I'm not throwing shade at him or anybody that trains martial arts. Much respect. But again, as I said at the beginning, there's a difference between being a martial artist and being a fighter. I don't consider myself a fighter. I consider myself a martial artist who fights because I love martial arts and I want to learn as much as I can from any martial art because I believe just like with academics, you can learn something even from people that you disagree with. You can read a book and then get to the end of the book and say, yeah, I don't really agree with that person's thesis or the conclusion, or I just wasn't satisfied with how they developed their argument in the book, but it made me think and it challenged me and it forced me to go through my own presuppositions and prejudices and ask, why don't I like this author's approach to this topic? Or why do I disagree with their thesis or their conclusion? So I believe you can learn something from everybody, uh, including martial arts, even watching Bullshito martial arts. I think you can learn from those false masters. Why? Because you learn that it's very easy to trick and deceive people into giving you a lot of money to teach them about chi powers. But... You watch street fight videos, you watch those backyard fights, the guys that think they can fight and the guys that can actually fight, there's a chasm between those two groups of people. 
And it's no joke. You watch those guys in those backyard fights get punched in the mouth for the first time and you see them freeze up. And I've been there. <laughs> I've frozen up the first time I got punched real hard in the mouth. It's not fun. You go into over, you know, your brain goes into panic overdrive and you just start to shut down because your brain's just saying, what just happened and why are we standing here letting it happen again? And it's only through exposure and years and years of training that I've gotten to the point where I'm just comfortable with the violence. That's just me though. And your mileage may vary. But I think that, like I said, you got to be real honest and sober with yourself, whether the martial art you're practicing is a relationship, work, hunting, target shooting, training Muay Thai or Jiu-Jitsu or whatever martial art you're engaged with, and just being very honest with yourself. What am I doing this for? And what goals have I set for myself? What's my mission here? Is it self-defense or is it to get in shape and build my self-confidence? Do I want to compete in a Jiu-Jitsu tournament? Do I want to get in the ring as a Muay Thai fighter? Or am I satisfied with just sparring in the gym? And I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. I think everybody has to make up their mind for themselves and find those training partners, find those coaches, find that gym that facilitates that path for you, that helps you accomplish your goals and, and pursue and go down that path that you've set for yourself. And along the way, you're going to discover a whole bunch of things about yourself that you didn't know were there. And maybe down the road, you decide, you know what, I do want to compete. Or you go into your first or second competition and you fight and you decide, you know what, this isn't for me. I love fighting. I do. The problem is I'm a bundle of nerves going into fights to the point where I make myself sick. I get so worried because I'm a perfectionist. And so I just don't fight that much anymore because I can't deal with the mental and emotional stress of preparing for a fight. Once I'm in the fight, I'm calm, I'm relaxed, I'm happy actually. But the three months leading up to a fight, I'm a wreck. And I'm just not a fun person to be around. And so I just decided, okay, if I'm going to compete, I got to just make up my mind to do it and accept the consequences mentally, emotionally, and physically. And for me, the physical side of the fight, that's the easiest part. The mental side, the emotional side, for me, that's the real challenge that I've got to address in fighting and building up to the fight. And I see other people and I marvel at the fact that they don't get nervous before fights. They're just so cool. And I want to learn from them and I want to absorb that mindset. But no matter how many times they explain it to me, I have a teammate. She's super comfortable getting ready for fights. She's just wired that way. And I just marvel at her ability to be so calm and cool and collected inside and outside of the, of the cage. And I've talked to her about it. And I intellectually understand everything she says. And I accept that what she's saying is relevant and valid for me too. But then when I go to apply it, just whew, it's like smoke in the wind. And so everybody is different. And I don't think there's any shame in saying, I just want to be a martial artist or versus I just want to be a fighter. Everybody's different. Everybody's got different goals. Everyone's on a different mission. And hopefully you're surrounded by people who want to help you accomplish those goals. And they want to facilitate your path in the direction of becoming a martial artist, developing those relationships, developing, <clears throat> excuse me, those connections with your teammates, with your coaches, with others that make you a better person. But I just think that, especially today in this reading, distinguishing between the reality of combat and the success that you enjoy in a game is very important so that you don't walk around with the wrong mindset and you don't end up being either so arrogant that you start fights 
just to prove to yourself that you're a good fighter. But likewise, you're so insecure that you run away from conflict, no matter how benign the conflict may be. I think you have to use your training to develop discipline, to develop the will to push forward, to develop that resilience and that perseverance. Because when it gets tough, are you going to run away? Are you going to freeze? Are you going to move forward? And I think like the Hagakure teaches, like Musashi teaches in his uh, book of Seven Rings, if you're not simulating in a realistic way a fight, if you're not putting yourself under that stress and anxiety, then when the fight comes, you're going to freak out. You're going to shut down or, you, or things are going to come out that you couldn't have anticipated before that because you didn't put yourself in that, that furnace and, and you didn't experience that testing that goes with intense sparring, going with people that are bigger and better than you are, people that are badder and meaner than you are. And so you're unprepared. You're, you have an unrealistic view of what a real fight is like. And so I highly recommend bare-fisted sparring every once in a while. And you go at 10% and you never close your fists because that's how you break your fingers. But I do it with my coach. No shin guards, no gloves, no wraps, no headgear, just a mouthpiece. Just go back and forth and just touch each other. Throw knees and elbows, but you don't throw them hard. You just throw them at like, again, 5%. And you let your partner see what's coming and you work your defense. And that way, when you do get clipped with a punch or a kick or an elbow or a knee, it hurts. I ain't going to lie. Even at 5%, catching an elbow to the side of the head, it hurts. It rings your bell. But it lets you know, okay, if that was 5%, if he had just hit me at 100%, you know, I'd be on the floor drooling and uh, it wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't go well for me. So therefore, I have a very realistic uh, expectation of what it's like to get punched or elbowed. And I'd rather get punched in the mouth than elbowed in the mouth any day of the week. Likewise, I'd rather get kicked with someone's foot than with their shin. I'd rather get kicked in the side than need in the gut. You know, you learn these things when you bare knuckle spar with people. But if you can find someone that you trust and, and someone who's going to take care of you in those, those moments, I highly recommend bare knuckle sparring. I highly recommend getting down on the mats for jujitsu and finding a partner who will go 20 or 30 minutes straight or an hour if you can find somebody and just roll for an hour, roll for 30 minutes without a clock and just go crazy, experiment, be creative, get in that flow state, go back and forth because a lot of stuff happens in 30 minutes. A lot of stuff comes out in 60 minutes when there's no clock to worry about and you don't have to worry about switching partners and you find out a lot about yourself. When you get to that 20 minute, 30 minute, 45 minute mark, you start to get fatigued. That's when the technique comes out. That's when all your handicaps, all your weaknesses and vulnerabilities come out. That's when you find out who you really are as a jujitsu practitioner. But if you never do that, if you never push yourself to go beyond the bell, if you never push yourself to go beyond what you think is possible for you. Well, I've talked with guys in law enforcement who've been in fights that have lasted 20, 30 minutes where they've had to run and chase someone on foot for 10, 15 minutes and then corner the person and then have to fight with the person to get handcuffs on them. If you're not physically, mentally, and emotionally prepared for that, what happens to you? What happens to your partner? What happens to other people? Those are heady consequences. Those are serious consequences for you as an individual, for you as a team, for the community at large. That's no small feat. This is why... I think it's so unfortunate that so many police departments don't allow their officers to train Muay Thai and Jiu-Jitsu, to go to MMA academies. 
it doesn't make you an aggressive aggro Chad who just walks around looking for a fight. It actually, in my experience and talking with law enforcement uh, guys that I have as teammates and, and I train as students, no, it, it's, it has the exact opposite effect. It humbles you. It quiets things down. It allows you to function in stressful situations in such a way that you don't lose control of your emotions. And your immediate instinct is not to pull your gun out or go for the taser or go for the pepper spray. You learn how to de-escalate situations, whereas before you were contributing to the escalation. And I only see benefits for people, especially law enforcement, of engaging in combat martial arts on a regular basis. Because, it, again, it shows you that you can actually handle a person in a non-lethal way. You can actually subdue a, a criminal. You can subdue a suspect in a way that doesn't end up with you being hurt or even the person that you're handcuffing. But if you don't have that, what's your default reaction going to be? Is it going to be to pull your gun? Is it to immediately get the taser? What is it going to be? And then what is your partner's reaction going to be? Is it just grab the shotgun? What's it going to be? If you only have two tools in the toolbox, then that's the tools that you have. But if you have multiple tools then you have multiple options. And at least in my opinion, the more options you have standing and on the ground with striking and grappling, the better equipped you are to deal with all of the stresses of life. And so the best defense, in my opinion, is not a good offense. The best offense is a good defense. And that when you think too offensively, when you don't consider the real-life consequences of violence, you charge forward recklessly, foolishly. But if you recognize having a strong guard, being able to defend your face, being under, being able to exercise the Philly guard, the, the close guard, the long guard, using the props, using teeps, using a jab, like all of these things, understanding how to manage distance and space, all of these will benefit you and allow you to not get into a serious fight, but rather diffuse the situation or just recognize there's something going on over there. I can feel it in the air. I can feel that tension in the air, that electricity. And so we're just going to avoid going over there altogether. When you train and you're exposed to violence regularly, you learn to pick up on these signs. You learn to feel these things. And you learn how to read the room, so to speak. But if you don't, if you're only playing the game, you don't learn how to read the room. You don't learn how to feel that energy that's in the air, that, that tension and then you end up wandering into situations and getting yourself involved in, in stuff that you didn't need to be involved with. So I'll wrap it up there. I've gone super long today. But I, again, as always, I hope that you enjoyed this and I hope that it benefited you. I'm a little out of it today, apparently. My thoughts are just not coming to me as in a free flow as they usually are. I don't know if it's my allergies I got tattooed yesterday and then went straight to the gym and taught for two and a half hours. So I'm a little tired today too, but uh, I apologize if I'm incoherent or I'm not making a lot of sense today. Um, again, that's just a part of the fact that I read these things with you and I try not to read too far ahead in preparation so that my responses are honest and genuine in the, in the moment and I don't have any kind of pre-canned answers because um, I want this to be kind of punk rock because that's just the way I'm wired and... That means then, yeah, you whatever comes out, comes out. And this is what I'm thinking right now. And I want my presentation of each episode of the podcast to be honest 
and to be transparent and to be where I'm at in my headspace in the moment. So I don't have a script prepared. I just read and I think about these things during the week leading up to and following the podcast and I start chewing on it. And then by the time I get to the second, third, fourth episode in a series, I'm kind of in that conversation. But that also means then that I don't know all the time what I'm going to say, which is what makes it exciting for me too. So I hope that this was uh, passable. I hope this was actually good for you. I hope this was helpful for you today. And uh, as always, I hope that if you have recommendations, contact me, let me know. Otherwise, I do have a book that I just got. Thank you to all of you who helped. Again, buy me a cup of coffee. I bought a new book, and it's going to be a series on the philosophy of the martial arts, basically. And um, I'll uh, tee that up for next episode. All right? Man, I feel like I'm stoned or something today. It's crazy. I need more coffee. That being said, thank you, as always, for your support. Thank you for being a part of this podcast. And I hope, as I said, it benefits you. And I hope that it benefits others and that you can continue the conversation outside of the podcast. And I hope that the things that I read and talk about help improve and better your life. So that being said, then, Space Monkeys, I will most definitely, God willing, and the crick don't rise, talk to you real soon. Peace.